Hello, this is Pastor Galen from the First Nazarene Church in Chicago, and welcome to our podcast. Hey, before we hear the message today, I simply wanted to say that no matter where you're at, we're glad that you're listening today. We hope this message will inspire you, instruct you, and help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. And if you live in the Chicagoland area, maybe this is the first step for you joining us in person sometime. Or if you want to, you can always check out our online live services every Sunday on our website at firstnaz.cc. Thanks again for joining us. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning again, and welcome into First Nazarene Church. Thank you for being a part uh, of our worship service today. Um, whether you're here in the room, for those of you joining us online, uh, thank you for being a part of a church here at First Nazarene, especially uh, for those of you that may be newer to our church. Maybe today's your very first time with us, or maybe you've been coming a couple weeks, but you haven't got super connected yet. Thank you for choosing uh, to walk into a place where you weren't sure what was going to happen and to give church a try or another try. Uh, just a special welcome. Thank you uh, for being here. Maybe you're a part of the um, crazy First Nazarene Globe Party that happened in this space last night. Five, six hundred, most of them being small children, running around with light wands and lights and had a lot of fun. Maybe uh, you came uh, from last night to church this morning. Just thanks for being here. Uh, if you are new, my name is Galen. I'm the pastor here, and I'd love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to yet uh, after service to learn your name and maybe some of your story, too. Uh, well, today, first of all, so many of you are asking, so I just have to start with this. Those of you who have been here, those of you that know me, those of you that know where I come from, last weekend was a great weekend, wasn't it? Were you celebrating last Sunday night as I was? Wonderful. God bless. I love the Kansas City Chiefs. Thank you. So many of you asked me, I just had to say it up front. It's probably the, I promise it's the only Chiefs comment I'll make, okay? promise, um, but we are celebrating. It's wonderful. Uh, today, you may have noticed we're beginning a new series called Fixer Upper, Fixer Upper, or maybe you didn't realize that. You just looked around, and you're like, what is happening on the stage? There are tools everywhere. Uh, some of you were like, oh, wow, that's a really cool tool. After first, after first service, someone was like, with that tool up there, like, can I borrow that? Is that a thing? Can we do that? And I was like, you were talking to the wrong guy. I look back there and I'm like, I don't know what it's called, but somebody probably knows how to use it, I guess. Uh, but fi Fixer Upper, uh, we're going to spend these next six weeks leading up to Easter talking about a renovation that God wants to do. Uh, maybe not so much in our house, but in our hearts. Because I believe that there are two kinds of people in the world. Uh, raise your hand if you're this first group that when you look at your house, you're always wondering, how can I make it better? We need to fix that over here. We need to paint this over here. If you're like my wife, we need to put like 10 more plants over here, and we're just going to renovate the whole thing and make it beautiful. Anybody, your mind constantly, how can we renovate our house? You people, you're wonderful. Uh, how many of you are the others that are like, listen, I love that we live here. It is fine. We don't need to do anything. How many of you? Yes. Yes, all of you. We, you are my friends. We need to get together and have coffee and not redo our houses, okay? It'll be wonderful. Um, sometimes, I don't know if that's a conversation in your house. We need to fix this. We need to not. Because here's what I'm guessing. Almost every one of us, if you looked at your house today, something probably needs to be fixed. Um, whether it's a pipe over here, a leaky faucet, there's something. And then I ask, okay, so why don't we fix our house. Why do we not have a fixer-upper? We're not doing anything. Maybe it'd be a few reasons. Number one, you're like, listen, I'm just too busy. I'm doing, I'm running from here to there, and to start that project would take at least four hours. It'd be a whole day. I just don't have time for it. Maybe the cost is too much. 
man, it was great to have a sunroom and lots of uh, sunlight, but to replace windows that many, whoo, maybe the cost is too high. Uh, Maybe you just don't want to deal with it. And instead, now you have learned ways around the things that you haven't fixed in your house. Oh, yeah, it's fine. You just smack it on the side. It works great after you do that, right? Ah, I just don't want to deal with it, and I've learned to live with it. Or maybe you just don't know how to fix it. Uh, Or maybe you've tried, and then in your pride, you can't admit that you and YouTube can't figure it out, and you don't want to call somebody else. You know it needs to be fixed. You've tried to fix it, and you just can't. In this Fixer Upper series, I hope you see this. There is a direct parallel, I believe, to our spiritual life. I believe that God wants to work on our interior life, our past, our our thoughts, our feelings, our um, responses to things in the past. I think he wants to do a work within us. Yet oftentimes, many of us rarely do this work. Maybe we're too busy. Yeah, I'm running from here to here. I got to get the kids to the next thing, and I don't really have time to address that thing that I know what's within me. Or maybe the cost is too high. Man, I know that thing needs to get addressed, but if I start, poof, what it might do to my relationship or my schedule or my time, the cost is high. Maybe you just don't want to deal with it. And it's easier to turn on Netflix again or keep scrolling or pick up a new novel or some kind of entertainment or escape. And maybe after doing this long enough, we've started to believe the lie. Well, that's just how I am. I don't want to address it. So it's just who I am and who I'm always going to be. Or maybe for some of us, we know that something needs to be fixed and we have desperately tried to fix it ourselves. We've realized we've done everything we can and yet it is still there. We must recognize that we need some outside help to come in and fix and address the mess within us. I believe that when Jesus looks at our lives, hear me on this, he's not so much interested in our exterior exterior facade. He's more interested in the internal life within us. Man, in our society, we're so good at curb appeal, aren't we? Man, look at my life, look at this exterior, look at the the clothes, the car, the house, the job, the family, whatever it is. We've got it together. And yet we know, internally, I believe that Jesus isn't just interested that you would pray a prayer and ask forgiveness so that you go to heaven when you die. What if he was actually much more interested in your heart and changing and transforming you in the here and now? That by the time you get to heaven, it's just the natural next step because that's who, who you've been becoming and how you've been living because God's spirit has been transforming you. I think that's what Jesus is interested in. So in these next six weeks, we're going to read um, parts of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount together. Matthew 5 through 7. We'll go to Matthew 5 in just a second if you want to go there. And let me just warn you up front. These are some of the most gut-level, gut-punches Difficult things that Jesus says. Jesus, did you really say that? Did you really mean that? How can anybody live how you would want us to live? And I hope that as we um, explore and discover these scriptures together, we would see that God wants to change our heart. Here's one of the main metaphors for this whole Fixer Upper series, just for introduction. Coming from C.S. Lewis, from his work, Mere Christianity, it's phenomenal. Maybe a great way to help you think about your life and what God wants to do. He writes these words. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in 
to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and, he does, and it does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace in which he comes to live himself. What if when we begin to follow Jesus, oh yes, Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Help me to live for you. Help me to go to heaven when I die. And yeah, I probably got some issues that need to be fixed. Go ahead, if you could work on them. What if God desires not just the pieces you know need to be addressed, but you, all of you, to say, oh, you thought you had this plan for your life, but I have so many more plans. It's a helpful quote for me, and maybe it'll hit home for you today. St. Ignatius of Loyola, he defined sin in this way. He said, I believe sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me ultimately is my greatest happiness. Here's why I tell you that. Because oftentimes, well, I follow Jesus, and I want Jesus to do the things I want him to do, but I don't really want him to touch these other areas of my life. Like, Jesus, don't really tell me how to live. I kind of want to still do what I want to do. Yet, can we trust that ultimately God knows what is best for us? And what he truly has for us is our ultimate happiness and our joy and our peace and our contentment as we trust in him, then that allows us to surrender. Okay, God, I don't understand, but here's my whole life. Do with it what you will. Build not just a cottage, but a palace within me. As we address this mess and the fixer-upper, God, would you do a work within my heart? Today, as we begin, we'll start in Matthew 5, 21, and Jesus' words on this specific topic. Jesus says this, You have heard it was said, our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. I told you, strong teaching. You'll notice as we go through these different teachings of Jesus, he constantly repeats this phrase, and I want you to see it. He says, you have heard it was said, but I say. Jesus is saying, you have heard it was said, because in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, the people he's talking to, thou shall not murder. You've probably heard that before. This is a part of our Ten Commands. This is a line in the sand. You cannot murder people. That is a sin. So you've heard it said, don't murder. What Jesus is doing by saying, you've heard it said, but now I say, is changing how we look at this. Because, some of you maybe fit in this category, if we have a line, do this, don't do this, a lot of us tend to try to come up to the line as close as we can, oh, but I didn't step over, without stepping over. Jesus was saying, yeah, it's not enough that you just don't murder one another. There's actually something more. There's something deeper. Again, what God cares about 
Maybe some of you grew up, even in your religious traditions, that it was more a list of laws and do's and don'ts, and did I fall in the right category? Am I mostly a good person? Jesus isn't interested as much in the do's and don'ts as he is in your heart. What's the motivation behind this? So it's not enough, just don't murder. He says, I say to you, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And at this point, I don't know if you're like me, I'm like, really, Jesus? Even if I'm just angry? Like, hey, if you're here today and you are the person who has never been angry with a single person in your life, would you just raise your hand today? We just want to congratulate you. You and Jesus can go hang out together, okay? It'll be the two of you. Angry. Don't we get angry? Some of us have an anger problem, and we know it. Frankly, those around us know it too. Some of us say, well, I don't really have an anger problem, because it doesn't come out verbally, physically, but yet we stuff it and bottle it, and I'm fine. And yet you know if you have bottled it up, you know that it will come out again, and oftentimes in places and ways that we never would have wanted it to. Oh, I'm not angry. I'm fine. But it's still an anger issue. Or some of us, and probably most of us, and I think especially in my past, I definitely fit in this category. Um, I don't have an anger problem because I deflect and defend myself with sarcasm and name-calling. How many of you are really, really good with your words? And if you wanted to, you can cut someone down, and you've got the specific name for them, right? Um, Jesus says, if you call someone an idiot, name-calling, you are liable to be brought to court. If you curse someone, you're that close. You're in danger of the fires of hell. Maybe idiot isn't your choice word. Maybe you know what it is for you. You walk around, you call people fart sniffers or whatever, whatever it is. I realized I couldn't give a real example because if I said it as a pastor, you'd be like, oh, pastor, you can't say that. Yet why do we say it? If you'd say, oh, we shouldn't, why is it in my mouth? Why do we call these people these things? I actually think at the seat of it is not, maybe you wouldn't define it as anger, but there is a defensive sarcasm where you're still lashing out in some way. Is that rooted in anger? And what is Jesus really up to here? Is he just saying, stop it? See, in renovation, deconstruction happens first. Stop. But then what is he building? What's at the heart of what Jesus would want to form within our hearts? I believe that God wants to change and transform your heart in such a way where ultimately, and for some of you, you need to envision this future where you can have self-control over your anger and have a heart that sees God's perspective and sees God's people, even if they cause you to be angry as God's loved children and to recognize there might be something within them that is making them cause and choose and that perspective ultimately would give you God's patience and God's peace. If I had to give you my bottom line up front today, and I'll work through this, I believe to live without destructive anger, we need God's perspective, God's patience, and his peace. Ultimately, maybe the most helpful thing that you will do this week doesn't happen in these moments, but would be a conversation you have in your life group, with your spouse, with a trusted friend. Two questions. The first conversation point today, what makes me angry? actually pause and sit and think, what makes me angry? Some of you didn't have to think very long. Oh, yeah, it's that person. You had it. What makes me angry? People that drive less than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, 
we have places to be. Why? We don't need to go under the speed limit. Maybe that's you. Maybe when your server messes up your order, you just, you listen, you put it in. It's not hard. It causes you to be angry. Maybe when you have to repeat yourself to your toddler six times in a row, or even worse, it's not a toddler, it's a coworker and an adult. Why do I have to keep? For some of you, your team will make a decision come draft day to either pick a new quarterback or not a new quarterback. And somehow it feels like whatever they decide, it feels like it's going to be wrong, and you will still be angry this time next year, some people. What makes me angry? When I don't get my way? When I don't get the results that I wanted? When someone makes a decision that I don't agree with? When I feel belittled or not valued? When people mistreat the people I care about? What is it? What makes me angry? And then ask this question, why? Why am I angry? What's the motivation behind my anger? What's the heart behind the anger? Why? Because listen, we will all self-justify our anger every time. Well, I'm angry because they're a name and they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have done that thing and now I'm in this spot and it's them. So I am justified in my anger. We will always justify our anger. But actually asked why. Because some of you, and you've already picked up on this, wait a minute, Jesus, you said, don't be angry, right? Hey, Jesus, do you remember that one time you walked into a temple and took some tables and flipped them? You took some whips and cord and drove people out? You angry? Yes. Okay, what about God in the Old Testament? Because of his love, it actually comes out in this wrath. God, you looked angry and it says you were angry. How? What? When you look at the heart of anger, Number one, there is such thing as righteous anger. Jesus, the scriptures say, uh, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is so fed up that this place where people should be able to come and experience the presence of the God who made them and loves them has turned into something else. A den of thieves, of robbers, a marketplace. So Jesus is angry and he's flipping tables. God, in the Old Testament, because of my great deep love for my people, these people have led them astray. I'm going to take action because I care for my children. How many of us as parents, if somebody does something that we don't like to our children, something that hurts our parents, do we not have anger? There is righteous anger. And I define that as this righteous anger, to be in right standing with God and his will and his way in the world. There are things in this world that should make you angry. It should make us angry that today 25,000 people will die because of starvation. There's more than enough food in the world, yet we have not figured it out. It should cause us angry that in Chicago alone, 16,000 women and girls will be trafficked this year. It should cause us to be angry that the suicide rate is climbing among our adolescents. These things should cause us to be angry in such a way that we take righteous action And as we take righteous action, the way that we carry that out in the world matters. Ends do not justify the means. Even if it looks more like Jesus' self-sacrificial love for the good of the other, righteous anger should cause righteous action. But again, not everything that causes us to be angry can be justified as righteous. So when we are angry, I believe if it's not righteous anger, it is actually destructive anger. We must be honest and see that each of us have destructive anger in our lives somewhere. Sometimes it can reveal deep insecurities, mistrust, unforgiveness, unhealed trauma from the past, 
our need to be in control, or more. Maybe the reason you fly off the handle with your spouse or your kids, it's not about them and you know it. It's the fear of lack of being in control. Maybe you fear, I won't be able to provide for them. I'm not good enough. I'm not around enough. I want what's best for them. And because of my fear, I don't mean it to, but it exercises this control. And then anger. Jesus invites us to trust him with things that are out of our control. And often, just look at your life, what we tend to control the most is where we have trusted God the least in our life. Maybe the, angry, maybe the reason you're angry at your boss or coworker is you feel belittled, unappreciated, looked over or looked down upon. You have this need within you to be seen, to be celebrated, to have approval, to be seen as worthy in the eyes of others. This motivation is not wrong. I would just say that it is misdirected. You see, when you come to God, what we believe, if you, uh, you need to be seen and celebrated, you receive God's grace, and then you are approved as worthy in God's eyes. You don't have to strive or work harder or be good enough or do enough for God to love you. The gospel of Jesus is just as you are today with all of your mess, with all of your past, with all of your mixed motives. God loves you. What if he's saying, come and be in relationship with me? I desire to, to forgive you of your sin, to take what is broken and hurting in your life and to make it whole and begin to renew you from the inside out, and then you will see you cannot earn from others what you were simply only supposed to receive from God. If you're looking for approval or worth, find it through God's eyes. Maybe the reason you're angry, for some of us, is that you grew up in a home where safety, vulnerability, and love were not the norm. Instead, you saw a parent wield anger like a weapon to get what they want. And maybe you've never had another way modeled. And so that's how you've learned to relate to others. Listen, the trauma in our past experiences, they can explain our behavior. Oh yes, I do this because of, but they do not excuse our behavior. Again, it can explain, yes, that's what happened and that's why but it still does not excuse it. It is time that we need to deal with it and ask Jesus, will you give me a new heart? Give me a new perspective. Show me that destructive anger always destroys. What does it destroy? Trust, love, and safety. It destroys those things. Yet we know trust, love, and safety creates an environment. It creates a home that even our frustrations can be discussed in love without leading to outbursts of anger. James says it best in James chapter 1. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You all must be quick to speak, quick to speak what's on your mind, cut them down, and quick to get angry because it always helps. Is that what he says? Isn't that how we live, though? Man, in Chicago area, we are so quick to cut other people off and let them know what we think, aren't we? He says, no. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. I love this distinction. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Righteous anger, this thing is within me, is wrong because God would want it, and that anger is propelling me to do something that aligns with God's righteous will in the world. Righteous anger. 
Human anger, I'm frustrated and I'm angry, does not produce the kind of righteousness that God desires for our world. Our human anger destroys trust and love around us. So then what do we do? What do we do with our anger? Today I would tell you, learn. It is a learned behavior. Learn to take your anger to God and to a trusted source to gain perspective. Because we know, how many times has the person that's made you angry in the moment, in the heated exchange, did you let them know exactly what you think? You let your anger out, you vented it, and it maybe felt really good. How many times did that lead to a constructive relationship and you two were the better for it? It destroys. Venting anger leads to destruction. Proverbs, and some of us, maybe this is the verse we need today. Proverbs 29.11, it says, Fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Well, I was just venting. I just needed a place to do it. True, but watch the direction. Do you give it back to the person who made you angry? Is that constructive? Where do you vent? What if you could say, God, I'm bringing it to you, and a trusted source of a friend who won't always just agree with me, but can also tell me what life is really like and give good perspective? Take it to them. We take it to God, and some of you, uh, you say, I can't pray to God when I'm angry. I think we can. Maybe a few other verses, and these would be more take-home that you would study them this week. I want you to see these from Proverbs 15. A gentle answer deflects anger. A gentle answer. Do we know that you do not always have to rise to the level of intensity of the person who's making you angry? You don't have to match them. Instead, you can say, wow, I can see that made you really angry. A gentle answer deflects anger. Harsh words make tempers flare. Control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. How many of you, in the moment of your anger, and you said what you wanted to, and you lashed out in the way, maybe you felt good because you felt like you were justified in doing it? How do you think other people viewed you in that moment? Wow, this is someone out of control of their own emotions, maybe labeling us a fool. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. In the moment of your anger, do your best to breathe. Pause. Don't match the level of intensity. Pause, and even if you could say one word prayer, God help me. Before I respond, before I react, I know I'm angry, my heart rate's going up, God help me. Breathe. As far as you can, if it is possible, do your best to not address the person in the moment. If it's possible, Get some time, some space, some time with God, some time with others to get a better perspective on what is really happening and then readdress the issue when you have a cooler head. To live without destructive anger, we need God's perspective. Comment I just made a moment ago. If I'm angry, I can't take that to God because for some of you, for some reason, you have pictured your prayers to God have to be very polite and very clean, and like, and I pray these certain words, and like, God, thank you. What if God has the heart of a parent, which Jesus tells us to call him father? When your child is hurting, you say, come talk to me. You need a place to vent. You need a place to tell me what's going on in your life. What if when you pray, you call things what they are? God, I'm angry. I cannot believe what they said. I cannot believe what they did. Let him have it. Better to let him have it than someone else, because watch this. 
when you run out of words in your prayers with God, and I'm just so angry. At the end, when you sit in that silence, there is a feeling and a place and a space here where God holds you and holds your anger. And if you sit in that quiet, you begin to see and understand this is a God who loves me. He can take it, and he's still here for me. And maybe in those quiet moments, God begins to give you some perspective. Maybe he begins to teach you that oftentimes the reason that people lash out and hurt other people or choose terrible things is because something is hurting or wrong or broken within them. So God, why I'm so personally angry because this person said this, I can begin to gain a perspective. God, what is going on within them? If hurt people are the ones who hurt people, God, what is wrong within them? Are you trying to help them too? God, if you love me, God, you love them too. So how I should respond to them should be in response of how you think of them. God gives us a perspective that ultimately dissipates our anger over time. Jesus, the longer that we walk with him, walk with him, you will notice God will begin to change your heart. The things that used to make you so angry, you begin to get an eternal perspective and realize that's ultimately not of importance. I'm not as angry as I used to be. Because God is reconstructing and renovating our hearts to align our passions with the things of heaven and not the fears, insecurities, pride, or the worries of the world that cause us anger. God's perspective. To live without destructive anger, we need God's perspective. We also need his patience and his peace. How many of you say, God, could you give me patience? In the midst of your anger, have you actually prayed that? Have you asked God for patience? Patience isn't something that you can drum up within you. Oh, I, I will be a more patient person. The Bible describes it as a fruit of the Spirit, something that God gives to you as you walk with him. Have you asked him, God, would you give me patience? And some of you, I hear you, maybe old timers, oh, don't pray for patience or God will give you situations to help you practice patience, right? But if you're saying that, what you're saying is I'd rather choose a life of comfortability versus rather the life that won't be perfect. I will go through conflict, but ultimately I will see God's character that he's building within me. So pray for patience. God, I'm already angry anyway. Would you give me patience? God will give it to us. And patience follows perspective. When you see how God sees something, you begin to realize, ah, I don't have to respond in a moment. I can be patient. And patience, we also need God's peace. And peace is more of a feeling of tranquility and happiness that, ooh, all is right. Peace is a rock-hard assumption and assurance. Despite my circumstances, even when I'm angry, when life isn't well, God is in control. God loves me. God will see me through us. He's the firm foundation we were singing of earlier. So I know I can trust him. So I have peace. This thing that's making me angry, God, give me your perspective. God, give me your patience. God, give me this peace that I trust you no matter what happens. Today, for some of us, for all of us in response, it's time to deal with your anger. If you know you have an anger problem and it comes out especially physically, take today as your day. It is time. It is time to get help. It is time to talk to God. It is time to go have a conversation. It is time to deal with this anger. It's not going away. If, it, if you're still dealing with it, it hasn't went away on its own and you haven't fixed it, it's time. Would you maybe take the steps you need to talk to God and talk to somebody else? 
For those of us that have said, well, I'm not really angry, but those other things are true. Jesus, you're addressing more of my heart. How could we deal with it today? In response to the message, and every week during this six weeks leading up to Easter, we'll have the same kind of response, but we'll do different things based on the message. We've intentionally built time, and this is what I wanted for you. I don't think what you need is to hear, oh, Galen, that was a great message that made me think. What you need is to talk to God, to let the Holy Spirit come and speak to you and deal with, with you with what's on your heart. So we've built in some quiet space at the end of the service. Do what you need to to respond to God. For some of us, we'll walk forward to one of these response stations, the two down front. There's two on the sides. You could slip out to the sides in the balcony. There's one in the back in the middle. You would go to that station, and first of all, you'll see paper and a pen, and you would confess. God, I have been angry. God, I have been holding on. I'm still holding anger. You would confess your sin, write it on the paper, put it in the water, and stir it, and watch how God deals with our sin. Maybe you would come to response station and receive communion. You would reflect for a moment on the God who has loved me, whose own righteous anger that I wouldn't have to spend an eternity apart from him would selflessly sacrifice himself for me because he loves me. That as you would receive communion, you would reflect on God's love and forgiveness for you. Maybe you would light a candle. Maybe God has been bringing a specific person to your mind during the message. As you light that candle, you're going to say a word of prayer for them. God help so-and-so. Maybe it's not at a response station. Maybe you just want to sit in your seats and pray. Close your eyes. Make it a private moment between you and God and talk with him. Maybe for some of you, it's not even so much anger. The beginning of the house that's God building. You said, God, you can deal with these things, but not these things. Maybe you would come to an altar. You'd pray with open hands and say, God, my life is yours. Whatever you want within me, come and renovate my life. Renovate my heart. It's yours. Would you respond to him today? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray with me? God, today, I trust the words of your scripture to say that if we are gathered, if any gather in my name, that I am among them. I trust that you are here with us. I trust that you have not been silent. You've been speaking to your people. I trust for each and every one of us there's something that we need to pray about or for in these moments. We simply need to sit in your presence. God, use these next few quiet moments together as a community and individually. Would you send your Holy Spirit among the seats among us, within our hearts and our minds. Help us to talk to you about the things we need to, to confess, to receive forgiveness, to pray for others, to surrender our lives to you, whatever it may be. Work within us. We love you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us for the First Naz podcast. If you're interested in what your next step in growing your relationship with God might look like, I'd encourage you to visit us at firstnaz.cc engage, or you can download our app from the App Store, First Nazarene Church. And there you can let us know if you've made a decision for Jesus, or you can also find practical resources to help you grow closer to Jesus. I'd also invite you to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already to make sure that you've always got the latest content. And if you want to, feel free to share this on your social accounts. You never know who else might need to hear today's message as well. Well, thanks again for joining us. Have a great day.